0: You are now listening to the January 1st broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and equipping the saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee.
1: Hi everyone, it's Terry from the program "Near My God to Thee. When you heard the title of this program, what was the first thought that came to mind? Did you think of the hymn "Near My God to Thee? I hope you did. I'm sure you're wondering what kind of program Nearer My God to Thee will be. First, I'll introduce this program to you. At times, before we think about the meaning of the lyric, we sing a hymn because we like the melody. We may sing a hymn because we're first familiar with the melody and one day, the lyrics in that hymn touches us in a new way. Have you ever experienced this? Have you said, oh, now I realize what this lyric is about and experience a greater blessing? I have often experienced this. In this program, Nearer My God to Thee, we will focus more on the lyrics of the hymn. We will look into how the lyrics and compositions were composed, and then we will relate to the lyrics in a deeper way as we give praise. This is why this program was made. Through this program, I hope we could give praise and draw nearer to the Lord. Today is the first session of Nearer My God to Thee, and as the title says, we'll look into the hymn Nearer My God to Thee. This hymn was made from the poem written by an English actress named Sarah Adams. Let's first listen to the hymn. First line Still, all my song shall be nearer my God to thee. I am envious of this confession. Let's look into the lyrics Near my God to thee, nearer to thee, even though it be a cross that raiseth me. Why does Sarah Adams, who wrote this lyric, say that being nearer to God was a cross that raised her? The melody is beautiful. But if we think about the lyrics, it's not beautiful, like the melody, but heavy. Sarah Adams compares her life of going near God to Jacob in the Old Testament and confessed what a difficult life it was. As I mentioned, Sarah Adams was an English actress. She was born in England in 1805. She was a famous actress at that time. Even though she lived in a time when there was no regard for women's rights, she confidently told her husband that she will not stay still at home despite being a woman. She was very active and believed in women's societal rights. How did a famous and confident woman like herself write a poem called Nearer My God to Thee? We will listen to the story through a drama.
2: The audience's applause echoed inside the London Richmond Theatre in England. The audience cheered Sarah Adams, who was the leading actress in the greatest play at that time, called Lady Macbeth. However, today was the last day Sarah Adams would be on stage. Doctor,
3: do you have the results?
2: Yes, Lady Adams. Please, don't be alarmed and listen. You have... tuberculosis.
3: What? Tuberculosis? Me? I'm only 32 years old!
2: I'm sorry. You need to get some rest. If you overexert yourself, you will be in critical condition. Also, for the time being, you cannot continue to act. It's harmful to your health. Sarah Adams lived in the early 19th century, where tuberculosis wiped away one-fourth of Europe's population. It was a frightening disease. Therefore, Sarah Adams was helpless. Furthermore, her mother died of tuberculosis when she was only five years old and her sister Eliza was also bedridden from tuberculosis. Sarah was only 32 years old, and the shadow of tuberculosis was gradually falling upon her. When the doctor told her to take a break from acting, she had no choice but to stop acting. Although she was so active and made an effort to increase women's rights, she now had to put everything down and rest. Then, unnecessary thoughts began to torment her.
3: "'Will I die like this?' "'Mother died of tuberculosis.' And sister's bedridden because of tuberculosis. Now will I be bedridden and die as well? If God is there, why did he allow such a cruel thing to happen to our family? Does God hate our family?
2: Sarah's mind was becoming complicated with negative thoughts. It was at this time when Pastor William, whom she had known for a long time, asked her to participate in making a hymn. She then began to participate in that work. The work of making a hymn for God began to shine a light in her heart. Beautiful poems about the Lord began to come alive in her heart. Then one day, she read the story of Jacob in the book of Genesis. Jacob
3: left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. Jacob deceived his father and brother to receive God's blessings. Now he's running away, leaving his hometown and family behind, and has to sleep on the road. A son of a wealthy household has become pitiful and has nothing now. His situation is not so different from mine.
2: What use is all the wealth and fame I once had? Sarah compared herself to Jacob in the book of Genesis. She read Genesis further. In Jacob's dream, he saw God and realized that God was with him. From this scene, Sarah realized that God was with her during the difficult situation. She had to lose everything because of tuberculosis, her mother's death, Her sister's nursing, and the shadow of death fell upon her. Due to the illness, her beauty was ruined, and the worldly dream disappeared. However, even in such a situation as this, she looked to God, who was with her, and realized that God is the only one she could depend on. With such desperation, she began to write a poem. She began to confess that she will always praise God in any situation, and desires to draw nearer to the Lord.
1: At times, when we're in a difficult situation, we may feel like we're all alone. We feel trapped, and it seems like every situation is challenging. It seems like there is no hope and everything is dismal. However, even during those times, our Lord never takes his eyes away from us. When we realize this, we are able to go before him and praise him like Sarah. Are you in a difficult situation? Don't look at the situation, but turn your attention to the Lord, who is above all situations. Then praise Him and go before Him one step closer.
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary, Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, Be Patient, Jesus is Returning. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark.
4: Let's open our Bibles to James chapter 5. In the very first part of verse 7 here in James, James says, look at James 5 verse 7. Look at it. He says, be patient, therefore, or therefore, be patient. Now, I know you've heard it a million times, but let me say it again. When you see a therefore in the Bible, you always look to what it's there for, right? What went above what it's saying? So that's the way we read the Bible in context. So he says, therefore, be patient. Well, therefore, what? Well, the end of, verse, of chapter 4 talks about the people who have been persecuting the believers. Wicked, and in this case, mostly rich, wealthy people. James rails against them at the end of chapter 4. He pronounces judgment on them. I mean, it's not happy reading, the end of chapter 4. And so then... James says, therefore, in the light of all these people and all this stuff that's coming against you, therefore, be patient. Be patient. Now, it's important for us to define what patient means. There are all different kind of definitions for patient. This word in the original language is, is, contains a whole richness. It's hard to explain in one word, Okay. So it's part of the word, it describes an attitude that can endure, delay. Uh, it can bear suffering and, and never give in. That, that's part of what this means. It, it means to carry to the idea of self-restraint. Somebody does you evil and you restrain. <clears throat> you don't return evil for evil. You, you don't try to retaliate. It means that you hang in there. Uh, Think of it as being steady. All this stuff comes at you, but you're patient. You're steady. You're fixed. You're secure. Now, it's hard enough to be patient when times are good, right? It's even harder to be patient when times get tough. They were living in tough times. They were being persecuted. Their lives were at risk, you know. We're not having exactly the same kind of issues they are. But life can be hard. Be patient. In the light of all this junk, be patient, therefore. Be patient. In verses 10 through 11, James provides two examples of patient endurance. So, okay, what does this look like? James says, well, let me show you. He's very practical. The first example of patient endurance, he says, is the prophets. Look at verses 10 through their first part of 11. Look at 10 now. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Consider the prophets. Now, you guys, he didn't have to say a lot about who the prophets were because, let me remind you, who was he writing to? Who are they much Gentiles who don't know the Bible? He's writing to Jewish believers. All they had was what we call the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament stories. I mean, consider the prophets. Then he says, the second example, look at the end of verse 11. He says, consider Job. You have heard of the steadinesses of Job, he says in verse 11, and you have seen the purpose or the goal of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Again, James doesn't tell the story of Job, which of course is very fascinating and involves a whole lot of showing us behind the scenes what really happens in the supernatural realm. We can see uh, it's like God pulls a curtain on the invisible realm. We can look right in and see how Satan and, and God and uh, dialogue sometimes and I mean, the story of Job. But I didn't have to say any of that. They knew the story of Job. All he had to say is consider Job. You want to talk about patience, long suffering, consider Job. And remember the goal of all of that in Joel's life was that the mercy and the, the kindness of God uh, would be shown. So those are two examples of patient endurance. But now, this is what I'm pulling through. These first uh, verses of James 5. It's so cool. Because James tells us how we can remain patient right now. James says, the number one reason why you should stay patient, why you should stay, hang in there, why you should just stay steady in hard times, number one reason, is because Jesus is returning. Amen? That's what he says. Be patient because Jesus is returning. Look at verse seven. First part of verse seven. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the what? What? Coming of the Lord. Now look at verse 8. You also be patient, establish, or strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So he says, now, what's the basis of my patience? Well, (laughs) the coming of the Lord. Knowing that Jesus is returning gives me steadfastness and hope. You know, Jesus promised to return for us. In John chapter 14... He told his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. What I've told you, if that were not true, he says, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. This is it. But if I go and prepare a place for you, I will what? Return so that I can receive you into myself, and where I am, there you will be also. Jesus says, I am going to return. It's not some theologian, somebody else saying, the very words of Jesus, I'm going to return. Don't let your hearts be troubled. In other words, one of the reasons that we have steadfast hope and patience and endurance through all the junk we go through is because Jesus is returning. Jesus' return will mark the beginning of never-be's. The never-be's with them. What are the never-be's? Well, there never be any more sickness, amen? There'll never be any more dying. There'll never be any more pain. There'll never be any more mourning or sorrow, amen? There'll never be any more separation. There'll never be any more goodbyes, When Jesus comes, he will end all of that. Lord, bring the never be soon. Amen? So for believers going through very hard times, James says, Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You can be patient. You can hang in there because well, Jesus is returning, and because you know Jesus is returning, James says, and this is the second thing I see, because you know Jesus is returning, James says to establish your hearts. The word establish means to strengthen something so it will stand immovable or fixed. Establish your hearts. Believers are to develop an inner stability rather than to be shaken by persecution. That's what he's saying to them. Now, what's the basis of our inner security? What's the basis? He says, the coming of the Lord is at hand, is the basis of our inner stability. In other words, the promise of Jesus' return is, is the basis of our deep-seated peace and inner security. The parousia, that's, that's the word, the coming of the Lord, that's a Greek word, is a reference to the rapture. He says, be steadfast, be encouraged, stay, stay immovable because the rapture is at hand. Now, here's an obvious question. It's obvious. It needs to be answered. It's got to be addressed. We can't sidestep it. The question is, well, if the rapture is at hand, why have 2,000 years passed without it happening? Very good question. If the rapture is at hand, like he says, why hasn't it happened? Well, I think this will help answer that question. At hand... In Greek, you don't have to remember it. It's in a perfect tense, which indicates that the event is near, but has not yet arrived. It's near, but it's not here yet. Actually, at hand denotes imminence and carries the idea of living in expectancy. What James is saying, the return of the Lord could happen at any moment. Hang in there. Be patient. Stand firm. Even through all the junk you're going through, the hard times of persecution, because Jesus could come at any moment. That's that's the belief in the imminent return, the any moment return of Jesus Christ, which is our hope. You You don't hear the church talking about that much anymore. The rapture is the church, the Bible says, the blessed hope of every single believer. Hey, let's talk about it more. The rapture is an event that can happen at any time. Someone has said the date of the rapture is the best kept secret in the universe. <laughs> True. And the motto of those who believe in the rapture, the motto of those who believe that is this perhaps today. That's our motto. Perhaps. I have that written by one of my computers where I study. Perhaps today. Maybe it'd be good for you to put that on a sticky note and put it on your refrigerator. Perhaps today, to just remind you, this is a cruddy day, but perhaps today this will be it. Jesus could return at any moment. Now, the rapture is an event that can happen at any time. This is in contrast to the second coming, which requires a number of events to precede it. The return of the Lord is in two stages. First is what we call the rapture. Uh, Let me, we know this is because the Bible talks about the return of Jesus and it's, it happens and it's like lightning, it happens, it's over, catches everybody by surprise, it's, you know, people are caught up. And then there are other, other reports of the return of Christ is slow and glorious. And there's a resurrection, you know, and all of that. There, it's in two stages. First is the rapture where believers are caught up into heaven to be with Christ. And Christians will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. To give an account for how we've lived for the Lord, how we've used our lives for Jesus. And you know, in chapter 1, verse 12, blessed Are those who endure under trial, they'll receive a crown of life? That's when they'll receive that. When they stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And after that will be the actual return of Jesus. We call that the second coming or the glorious appearing of Christ. I like that term, the glorious appearing of Christ. Everyone in the world will see that. And Jesus will come. Himself to establish his millennial kingdom on this world. A millennium is a thousand years. And the book of Revelation talks about how Jesus is going to establish a one thousand year reign upon this earth. Part of it is going to fulfill his promise to David. At the beginning of that thousand year kingdom, we're told that Jesus will judge the surviving nations, those who have survived the Great Tribulation, he's going to judge them in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And there he'll settle accounts among the survivors of the end-time judgments. But every remaining wrong is going to be dealt with at the Great White Throne Judgment. And this will happen in order to prepare the world for the eternal kingdom of God. You will never stand before the great white throne judgment because Jesus took that for you. That is a judgment of condemnation. Anyone who stands before that is going to be judged and will be eternally separated from God. You get to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which is like uh, the, the Olympic game judges who are giving out the prizes. He says, the coming of the Lord is at hand. The promise of Jesus' imminent return is a basis for our inner security and stability. Right? But note this. The Bible nowhere promises that every wrong or injustice here will be settled in your lifetime on earth. How many of you have experienced injustice and um, you 've experienced wrong that has not been righted. Could I see everybody has to one degree or another the injustice of this world, the lack of morality, the lack of what 's fair. hey, Christians in james' time were were being robbed, they were being cheated they were being defrauded, they were denied their wages they were brought before corrupt judges who sent them as it gave them sentences to prison and jailed them and took away their civil rights it wasn't fair there was no justice but james reminds believers to remain patient in an unjust world because jesus is returning and that means justice is coming amen <laughs> Jesus' return means justice is coming. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Chapter 5, verse 9. He says, at the end of the verse, he says, the Lord is coming. The judge is standing at the door. Amen? When Jesus returns, hey, one of the things we hope for is for real justice to happen. Jesus says, yeah, I'm returning, and I'm savior, I'm Lord, I'm this and that. But one of his titles is the judge, yeah. the judge. And justice with a capital J yeah. is going to be meted out. Who's this judge? It's Jesus. Jesus said in John 5, 22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Jesus is a judge of all. In Romans 2.16, the Apostle Paul says, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And he writes to Timothy saying, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is the judge. When he returns... He is bringing judgment. So you live in the hope of that. He says, the judge is at the door. Remain steady. Stay patient. Hang in there. Don't lose heart in this unjust world. Justice is coming. Another reason to be steady and patient is because, I see this, so pull it out. It says, God is working. Hang in there. Stay fixed. Stay steady. God is working. James provides an example of of this. He uses the analogy of a farmer. Look at verse 7, the last part of it. He says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You see, all the farmer could do, they didn't have drip systems, they didn't have sprinkler systems of any kind, irrigation. So all the farmer could do was till the soil and plant the seeds, and then it was like, God, I'm waiting on you for the rain. And in Israel, there was an early rain and a latter rain. You could count on rain at those times, and then there was some rain in between. But you know, how much can you count on rain? Right, gang? The job to have is to be the weatherman. You never have to be right. You can always blame it on the weather, right? You can say, it's going to snow tomorrow. and Instead, it's 90 degrees. Well, the, you know, have you ever heard him just kind of backtrack? It changes. So you never, they never knew. Oh, we're, so what did they do? They had to, they were expecting, always waiting, always looking for rain. They'd be watching the clouds. Do you think, oh, it looks kind of like a rain cloud. Like, no, it's not. They'd be always watching, waiting. They were in Expectancy. And so James says, like the farmer. He says, you guys, be expectant. Expect the Lord to return. The Lord is working. The Lord is working. He can't make the rain. I mean, the, the farmer can't make the rains. All he can do is expect the Lord to, to bring the rain. And you know what? It's also true that God is working in our lives right now. We can't make that work happen. It's the work of Jesus Christ. It's it's him that gives, gives us the will and the power to do what he calls us to do. But while we're waiting, while we're living in this confident expectation of Jesus' return, while we're waiting, we cannot be worrying. Frankly, some of you are worrying more than you have been waiting for the return of Jesus. This world and all the junk, all the theories of what's going on, has gotten your attention more than you have fixed your eyes on Jesus. The Bible says we must fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. It doesn't say fix your eyes on, you know, on the news. Fix your eyes on the conspiracy theory. Fix your eyes, stop it. Get your eyes fixed as much on Jesus Christ. You spend as much time getting into the word as you do reading the internet. Or your source of, you know, whatever you're worrying about. Stop it, okay? Stop it. Spend at least as much time in the word of God. You know, you probably stop worrying a lot. And realize, you know, I'm not expecting oh, the terrible, I'm expecting Jesus. I'm expecting Jesus to return. Come on, put things into proportion. The world is winding up. The end is coming. What do you expect? Times are going to be uncertain. We see Bible prophecy, I believe, starting to be unfulfilled. Or at least I could see how things could fit into uh, Bible prophecy right now. But you know what? That's not what Jesus wants me to worry about. He says, when you see these things begin to happen, lift up your heads and what? Rejoice. Are you rejoicing? Are you worrying? Lift up your heads and rejoice, for your redemption is drawing near. Chuck Sundahl has said, true patience is waiting without worrying. Rest in the truth of Romans 8, 28. I don't know. For some of you, I don't have to read it. It's just like, boom, you know it. Like a lot of people know John three sixteen. You don't have to quote it. You just kind of know it. But it says, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For we know. For we what? Know. It doesn't say for we hope. It doesn't say for we think. And it doesn't say for we understand. We know. How do I know? By faith. This world, I'm telling you, is full of things I don't get. It's full of mysteries. And there are no easy answers to a lot of things. They're happening or have happened. But I know that for those who love God, all things are working together for good. I know by faith. Now, I have seen it in the past as well, which builds my faith. But I know I don't have to see I don't have to to understand, I know, by faith. I have always wanted a tapestry. You know what a tapestry is? You know. Always wanted one. We were out of town, and, and they had these, these consignment stores. A lot of them just kind of sharing space together. And we were walking through, and... Ah! there's the tapestry I've always wanted. It's big. It's beautiful. I told Leslie, oh, I want that, I want that. And we looked at the price, and I was like, uh, no, no, no. So, you know, like a lot of times, you just figure, well, Lord, if you want me to have it, it'll still be there next week. So we go, next week, it's there. Lord, if you want me to have it, and price hadn't changed. Lord, if you want us to have it, and it'll be-, be there and the price will be reduced. So about six months later, I think it was about that long, the, uh, we looked at it, it's still there and the price was reduced. So what we did was we made a ridiculous offer to the consigner that was below the price that had been reduced. It's kind of embarrassing. And the consigner accepted it. So now we have the tapestry. It's awesome. It's really beautiful. It's got all these vivid colors. And it also has gold thread in it. It's just gorgeous. Big. Okay. Once you bought it, I was like, no, where are we going to hang it, right? Have to get rid of something to put it up. But, but you know what I noticed about it when he went to hang it? I saw the backside of it. <laughs> and it, it was ugly as sin. <laughs> ugly. In fact, looking at the back side of it, I would never want that thing. Looking at the back side of it, I couldn't even make out what it was. Well, maybe a little bit of what it was. But if you had, if I hadn't seen the front, I wouldn't know what was going on by looking at the back. It was only when it was turned around and it was hung and I could stand back and see it, I could say, oh, wow, I never would have known. What amazing work was being done on the other side by looking at it from behind. Life is like a tapestry. Life is like my tapestry. We're on the back side of it, you guys. Some of it kind of makes sense. Some of it you know, kind of make out what's happening. Some of it just looks But when we stand in the Lord's presence, we will see that all things worked out beautifully. We'll see the real picture that we can't understand or see right now. God's calling us to trust him in the meantime. Every thread, every color. Sometimes life is very dark, those dark threads in your life. Sometimes things are vibrant. Some things seem like gold. (laughs) But all those things brought together make something beautiful that you will see in eternity You're being asked right now to trust, to be patient, to stand immovable, to be secure, because Jesus is returning. We're watching, we're waiting, we're expecting. That's our hope, and believe me, you can say, I have this hope, and I shall not be moved. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the encouragement of your word. We're grateful that your word speaks to us. It, it, just, it just speaks right to our heart, right to the place where we need encouragement, exhortation, exhortation and correction. We will fix our eyes on Jesus. We will fix our eyes on the imminent return of Jesus. We believe that right now, the tapestry of our lives are being woven and we will see the beauty of the other side when we see you. In Jesus' name, Amen.
5: My say
0: Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries has the opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing the broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry.
6: Hello, heart and soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. We're going through the book of Jonah, and... Often all people think of when they think of Jonah is that it's just about a big fish and a disobedient prophet, and certainly that's true. And the portion we're going to look at today in chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4, is a portion that's pretty familiar to most people. They recognize that Jonah was called by God to go to the Ninevites and that he took off and went the other way. And he went at great lengths to get away from obeying God. And as we look at that, some of us might be tempted to say, well, I would never do that. I would never take off and go to a different country to avoid obeying the Lord. But I think we're going to see today, as we look in the Word of God, that there might be many ways that we have become like Jonah, ultimately because we're unlike God at times in our thinking, and that maybe we have avoided what God has called us to do And have gone at great lengths to do so, just like Jonah, as an example. And I believe we're going to see today that disobedience takes effort. And also disobedience takes its toll upon us, and as we will see, Lord willing, next week, those around us. Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah? And we're going to be starting our verse by verse. We did an overview last week, and I'll review a little bit of that. But I've shared this before. When most people think of the book of Jonah, they think of a big fish. They think of a whale, an incredible story of a man being swallowed by a whale. They may know about the plant that God brought up and zapped the next day with a worm. But ultimately, we're going to see as we go through this book that Jonah is so much more than a fish story. It is the spirit-inspired account of a disobedient prophet which I believe ultimately reveals the heart of Israel at the time, and maybe our hearts. That at times we are actually so unlike God. We're going to certainly see in this book that Jonah is so unlike God. Now I want to briefly review as you're turning to Jonah... The context, we went through in-depth last week, and I encourage you to get a CD from that. We went through ultimately the entire book, an overview of it. We went through an in-depth context of the Israelites from Genesis up to the point of Jonah. We did from the Ninevites also from Genesis, starting with Nimrod up through the time of Jonah. And I'm just going to touch on those things this week. So if you weren't here, I encourage you to get a CD of that. It will be helpful for you, I believe. But let me remind you ultimately of what the book is about. Now there's all sorts of, first of all, ideas from unbelieving scholars and seminary professors who deceitfully and arrogantly declare that this is too fanciful to be true. And there are many others who interpret this book as allegory, just a a story to convey truth. Now, I believe we see from Scripture, as I shared last week, and I want to review that the book of Jonah and the story of Jonah is a true story as affirmed by the Word of God. We're going to see today in Jonah 1.1 that the Word of the Lord came to Jonah. And this phrase, as I mentioned last week, is used consistently to speak of the Word coming to God's prophets in the context of reality. It's important to note that we saw last week in 2 Kings 14:25 that Jonah was God's servant, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-hepher, that he was a factual person. 2 Kings chapter 14:24 and 25. And more importantly, we have the Lord's words recorded in Scripture that affirm the historicity and truthfulness of Jonah. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. That sounds like churches these days. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Lord Jesus himself affirms the issue of Jonah being swallowed by the whale. He affirms the issue of the preaching of Jonah. He affirms the Ninevites' response of repentance and remember last week I shared there's a parallel passage in Luke chapter 11 also. So in a nutshell, we went in more depth last week, but this is a true story. Jesus Christ Himself, the Lord of all, declares it to be a true story. And I want to remind you that if after hearing the truth from Christ, if you still believe it not to be true, I would examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Jesus shares in John 10:24 as he shares ultimately to the unbelieving Jews. The Jews therefore gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered and said, I told you, and you do not believe me. You do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. You see, if you don't have faith in Christ, you're not his sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. And we know from the book of First John, same author in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, We are from God, pointing to the apostles who tasted and felt and were experienced the truth of Christ. They were in his midst. We are from God, and he who knows God listens to us. They wrote the word of God. The foundation was written of the church and the apostles and prophets. He says, and he who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We can know the spirit of truth and spirit of error by if people accept the truth of the word of God or not. Jesus says it is a factual event. Now, I want to share the context of the book, two things we need to understand, and I'm going to briefly review this. We're going to look at Israel at the time of Jonah and Nineveh at the time of Jonah. And if you remember, we saw that Israel was disobedient on the way to exile. Now, it's important to realize this because Jonah, in a sense, typifies Israel at his time. On the surface, Israel and Jonah were fearing Yahweh. They were fearing the Lord, but yet they were arrogantly and continually disobedient to His commands. Now in a convinced view, we see ultimately that Jonah was written during the time of the divided kingdom. If you'll remember Solomon, after he died because of his sin, the kingdom was divided north and south, ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, two kingdoms, and Scripture reveals throughout that the northern kings were wicked throughout every single one. And in the southern kingdom, almost every king was wicked with a few exceptions. And during this time of the divided kingdom, Jonah was around at the time of Jeroboam II's reign. And we looked at that last week between 793 B.C. and 758 B.C. And everything we have concerning Jeroboam II is in Second Kings 14:23 through29. and we read that last week, and you can look that up. Now it's important to note that all that is happening to Jonah is happening at a time in which Israel is about one generation away from being taken, the Northern kingdom, into captivity by the Assyrians. They are very, very close to God pouring out his discipline. It is coming to a head. It is very close. Now indeed, the prophets continued to warn of impending doom, but in 722 BC, the Assyrians came and conquered the northern kingdom and took them into a brutal captivity, 2 Kings chapter 17. Now Jonah, whose name means dove, was, as we will see in 2 Kings 14, called a prophet. And he was ministering in the time of Israel's disobedience and on the way to a brutal exile. We need to recognize that. Israel was disobedient, and they were spiraling towards God's discipline. Now, certainly in the book of Jonah, we'll see a condemnation of Jonah, but I think also Israel, because apparently Jonah and also Israel were both so unlike God, as we will see. Now, who is it that wrote the book of Jonah? Although the author is not named, certainly we know God Himself inspired the book through His Spirit, that all Scripture is inspired by God or God-breathed, that no prophecy of Scripture is of one's own interpretation, but men moved by the Spirit of God spoke from God. But who was the man who was moved by God's Spirit to write this? It really seems as though it was Jonah himself, as he records events that he himself would be privy to ultimately. And I believe we see in the end... That because it is written quite possibly from Jonah that we see maybe he did have a heart change. Because he was willing to record his sinful events for us to learn about, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we see Israel was a disobedient people on the road to discipline. Well, what about Nineveh, the capital of Assyria? Well, we saw last week they were a wicked and violent people. They weren't on the road to discipline. They were on the road to God's judgment. And we'll look at that a little more. Israel was spiraling in sin. Although they were God's people, they were on their way to being exiled. Nineveh was on its way to judgment because of their wickedness. And we'll look more in depth when we get to verse 2 today. So with that in mind, this is where Jonah comes in, those two places, the two threads that are running around the book of Jonah. God's people almost to the point where they're going to be exiled, and the Ninevites to the point where God is going to judge them. That's where Jonah comes in, and I believe we're gonna see today that disobedience takes effort, and it takes its toll. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Verse 4, And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on The sea, so that the ship was about to break up. I believe in these three verses we're going to see basically three things. First of all, God gives Jonah clear commands how to serve. Secondly, we're going to see Jonah's great effort to disobey, as I've shared before. Then we're going to see the beginning of God's heavy handed discipline upon his disobedient servant Jonah. So, first of all, let's look at the clear commands. Notice, the word of the Lord came to Jonah saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Well, what is the significance of this? Well, first of all, as I've shared, this was a standard phrase of God used more than 90 times in the Old Testament to speak of God's Word coming to one of His servants or prophets. The Word of the Lord, the Word of Yahweh, if you look in your Bibles, L-O-R-D in caps, speaks of the Lord, Yahweh. It is the verb to be in the present tense, the I Am. He is the self-existent One. The Word of the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, the I Am, the self-existent One. It is the word of the Lord that came to Jonah. That's very important to realize. This is God's word coming to Jonah. God gave it directly to him. Now remember, before Scripture was complete, before we had the faith delivered once for all to the saints, the body of truth we believe in, God spoke in many ways, in many portions, but now He has spoken through His Son, Hebrews chapter 1. And this was one of those ways that He spoke in bits and pieces to the prophet Jonah here, and ultimately to us through the word. Now, I think we need to make one observation here also that I think is significant in interpreting the book of Jonah. Notice the text says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, is there anything left out in this verse? Notice there's no mention that Jonah is a prophet. There is no mention that Jonah is his servant. You say, well, what's the importance of that? Well, certainly in 2 Kings 14.25, Jonah was called a prophet, and he was called his servant. And throughout Scripture, when the word of the Lord came to the prophets, we see God would name them, for instance, Haggai 2.10. The word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet. The word of the Lord, Zechariah 1.1, 1, 1, came to Zechariah, the prophet. But here we see the word of the Lord just came to Jonah. What's the significance of this? I think we'll see, although he would be considered a prophet and his servant, right now, in the context of this true story, certainly Jonah is not acting like a prophet. Certainly Jonah is not acting like his servant. And we see in the context of his disobedience, quite possibly, that's why Jonah, inspired by the Holy Spirit, leaves out that truth concerning himself at this time. Maybe some of you are true believers. You're a servant of Christ in position, but practically speaking by your actions, you're not a servant at all. If God was to write about you at this moment, he wouldn't say, my servant, so-and-so. He might say, so-and-so. Maybe that's the case in what's going on with Jonah at this moment. But there's good news as we get to the end of Jonah, we see that God does call him his prophet and his servant which I believe points to the fact that quite possibly Jonah did repent. Okay, so the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Well, what does God's word say to Jonah? Verse 2, three commands, arise. Go to Nineveh, second command, the great city, and cry against it. We have the word of the Lord. It's God's word coming to Jonah. And we have these commands, literally rise up and walk or go rise up and go Jonah two things rise up and go right away where to Nineveh the great city Jonah get up get moving and go to Nineveh God says to Jonah now if you'll remember I shared last week Nineveh was originally built by Nimrod Genesis chapter 10 Nimrod the great grandson of Noah was a mighty warrior and evidently a wicked man Because in Genesis chapter 10, in the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and we know what happened in Babel as man rebelled against God. Nimrod was leading that. We know that the Assyrian empire is named the land of Nimrod, Micah 5.6. Now, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian empire. The Assyrians were the superpower of Jonah's day. They were the same power that would take over the northern kingdom in 50 years. And Nineveh is found right now. You can see the ruins near the Iraqi town of Mansoul. And in the book of Jonah, we see it is the great city, verse 2. But also later on in Jonah, it is an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. This is a big place that God is calling Jonah to go. It is the capital of ultimately the rebellious people of the world. And Jonah is being called to go there. Chapter 4, it says that there were 120,000 of those who didn't know the left hand from the right hand, speaking of children, small children, which ultimately meant there was probably about 600,000 people in the city of Nineveh. It was a big, big city. A three-days walk to cross it. Now, at the time of Jonah, as I've shared, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. That's where the king was of the Assyrian Empire, as we'll see. And Nineveh was about 500 or so miles northeast of Israel. It is called the great city. So Jonah is commanded to get up and go. This was no small thing for Jonah. This was a big journey for Jonah. But what is he also to do? Verse 2, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. This word cry in the Hebrew speaks of calling out or proclaiming. It's cognate is translated proclaim in chapter 3, verse 2. And in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Greek word used to describe it is "caruso," which speaks of proclaiming or preaching. Now notice the direction of his preaching. Cry out against it. God's telling Jonah to get up and go to Nineveh and cry out against it. This was a very difficult thing. And certainly we understood the Israelites' view towards the Ninevites. They were a pagan nation. They were a wicked nation. God was going to judge them for their wickedness, as we would see. They were, as we will see, a very brutal nation. But God is telling Jonah to do something. God is saying, rise up, go, and proclaim against it. And he is to speak God's word, as we see in chapter 3. He is to proclaim against Nineveh. Now just a side note here, this is where often our evangelism falls short. We do not share the truth that God is against those in sin so that they will understand their position before the judge so that they would cry out for mercy and salvation from Christ. The Gospel begins with the news of where we truthfully and rightfully stand before God and Jonah is to cry out against Nineveh. Now later on we'll see that is in the context of God's compassion. It is God's compassion to have His servants cry out against, but ultimately that they would repent as we would see and be saved. Well, why is He to cry out before them? End of verse 2. For their wickedness has come up before me. God doesn't miss a beat notice why for their wickedness has come up before me and I want to tell you right now as shared earlier from the Word of God God is completely aware of everything we do and everything we think and there is a day that he will hold us account for our wickedness if we are not saved and for those who are saved there is a judgment seat in which we will be judged for the deeds done in the body not condemned But we could suffer loss or we may be rewarded for those deeds. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 3. But here, these are non-believers. And their wickedness has come up before the Lord. That's why Jonah was being called by God to proclaim it. Simple as that. Their wickedness was before the Lord. Now, what is this wickedness here that God is speaking of? Now, the historians have noted the brutality of the Assyrians, and you can probably watch the History Channel at that time of the Assyrians' history and see even the secular world recognizes their brutality. But I think it's interesting and tempting to study those things, but I think actually we need to study what God says about them and spend our time in that because God's word is all-sufficient and he gives us what we need to know. Now, along with history's account, God reveals in his word that they were a wicked, violent people. And I shared in the book of Nahum, written during the reign of Manasseh, 695 to 642, about 100 years after Jonah, God's prophecy against Nineveh and why. You can go up a couple pages to the book of Nahum. And we're going to look at chapter 3, and this gives us a description of The Wicked City.